Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we talk a lot about climate change uh, and cover it as well on Coastal News Today. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk today about that issue, but more than the science behind it or the event of it, we are going to talk about what to do about it and with it. And I'm really looking forward to this show that we're going to have today with the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, uh, Beth Gibbons. I am really looking forward to this conversation. This is a conversation about community, I think. Yeah. And a community, as a community of coastal professionals, all of us on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, our listeners around the world, in fact, uh, we are a part of a community of professionals that I think are adaptation professionals so this or should be or should be should or maybe we should consider ourselves that yes. so uh this is really a show to get to learn about this community organization that exists and has existed for some time beth heads it up and we're going to learn all about it but before we get into it let's have a quick word from our sponsors the american shoreline podcast network and coastalnewstoday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, we are so pleased to have joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast, uh, Beth Gibbons. And let me tell you a little bit about Beth. Uh, she is the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, uh, an organization founded in 2011. And Beth has been the executive director of that organization for about four years. Uh, it's an organization dedicated, and I'm going to try to summarize it, but we're going to ask her. But I think the phrase that jumped out uh, on their webpage was that the organization is devoted to accelerating the evolution of adaptation professionals. I think that's an interesting mission among other uh, uh, goals of the organization. Uh, Beth is a real pro. She was the director of the University of Michigan Climate Center before joining uh, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. And she managed NOAA's Great Lakes Regional Integrated Sciences and Assessment Center uh, I'm a big fan of Noah's and uh, very glad to hear big that it comes from that background. Uh, but we came across Beth Tyler when we were posting article on Coastal News Today entitled Water Could Make the Great Lakes a Climate Refuge. Are we prepared? An article that ran in a uh, magazine called Bridge, Michigan uh, in Feb on February 16th. So we tracked down Beth and I'm really looking forward to talking to her today. Yeah, well, let's start, Beth, uh, with you. Let's learn a little bit about Beth Gibbons. Uh, where? Let's learn about your background. Tell us your story. How did you become the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals? Well, thank you so much for bringing me on the show. I'm really excited to get to talk with you guys. I've 
um, enjoyed getting to know a little bit more about the community that you know you are supporting over the last last couple of weeks since you reached out to me. I've been able to look back at some of the former podcasts, and you really have had uh, something of an all-star lineup, I think, coming in and talking about climate change. So I'm excited to build on those conversations. Um, and it makes sense, because for me, in my role at, at ASAP, um, all of my work is made possible really by building on the community of people who are making climate adaptation and resilience work possible. And um, my background is in community development and urban planning. And I've been working on community development, sustainable development for the better part of two decades. And over the last decade, I've really focused on domestic climate change adaptation in the United States. And I think you alluded to this really effectively that the way that ASAP approaches climate change adaptation and very much the way I approach climate change adaptation is about a community conversation. Um, you know, often climate change is framed as being an environmental issue, and there's certainly um, a strong environmental component to the work that we do. But a lot of our work is really about how do we as people, as a community, as states, countries, and even a world, um, you know, interact with one another and interact with the resources that we have. And, and that kind of story of how do we as a community come together to support one another? How do we then look at the natural resources around us as part of that support system has been something that's been in my family history since I was uh, very young, growing up in a, a small and a rural town, but a town that is dominated by a major tourism industry of baseball because I come from Cooperstown, New York, America's most perfect village and the home of baseball. Um, and uh, yeah, Julie, how I slide that in there. So in case you didn't know, everyone knows it's the home of baseball, but it's also America's most perfect village. Um, you know, that my life has really kind of revolved around how do we um, build a community that has really strong fabric and interacts with this natural resources and also takes advantage of the kinds of other systems that may be around it. You know, it's Cooperstown, of course, having this baseball and tourism history, but any place else that I've gone, I try to find the way that we weave the resources that exist into resilience and well-being for the people that are there and the environment around us. I would love to just take a moment here to learn a little bit more about your uh, early years in, in Cooperstown. And uh, I've never been to Cooperstown, Peter. I've never oh, I've no. never been to the Hall of Fame. I've, I've, it's on my bucket list. Uh, you know, I... I I, believe me, it's on my bucket list. I would love to go. What I didn't know and what I in doing a little research uh, about you, Beth, uh, mm -hmm. was that Cooperstown is a waterfront is a, is a coastal, I guess, you know, as a shoreline. Oh, don't 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 hurt yourself. Let me help you. Please do. Cooperstown, New York, sits at the headwaters of the Susquehanna River, which is one of our greatest tributaries to the Chesapeake Bay. Wow. And Otsego Lake itself is a really unique ecosystem. It is a lake which is nine miles long and a mile and a half wide and 163 feet deep. So it's a really profound lake, even though it's very small. So you can put that in comparison to, say, um, lake Erie, which at its deepest point is 200 feet deep. And so you have this small, profound lake, which has really, um, you know, delicate ecosystem. And of course, there kind of sits as um, sentinel to the health of the Susquehanna, which we, you know, think about all the time as we think about um, the stories that people are experiencing 
whether that be flooding, recreation, fishing, and of course down at the Chesapeake, which is probably our most successful story of watershed management and restoration and protection, at least on the East Coast. And I would think, I would, you know, argue in the whole U.S. Um, so yeah, Cooperstown is very much, it's a, you know, it is a waterfront town. And I, um, even as growing up there, I spent my summers waiting tables at Sam Smith's Boatyard. Um, and so, you know, have had this kind of through line in my life of really thinking about the relationship that we have with water and the relationship that we have as you know, businesses and caretakers, but people who are able to be um, in a place because of like because of the water and and um, for me, I didn't mean I, you know I did mean to cut you off because I just I actually love telling the Cooperstown story. No, no, no. Um, I'm glad you did. I'm really glad you did because you did a much better job than I could. <laughs> But I, I, I would like to know, just, you know, g tell me about uh, growing up there or, you know, how living in that community, uh, it's, it's, an, it's a community that's environmentally connected to that mm -hmm. lake, to that, wa to that, to that headwaters. Uh, was that p a part of the community growing up? I mean, was that a, a, something that everyone kind of knew and, and maybe was proud of? Yeah, it really was. Um, the The community has a really strong connection to the lake, and from my from my time growing up, um, not to overindulge and in getting to tell personal stories, but you know, we owned initially when I was young. My parents owned a restaurant that was on the lake, and so we actually before I was born in the 70s, fishermen would bring up lake trout. Um, and that was something that they used to put on the menu. So we had this like really intimate relationship between our business and the lake. My godfather who lived next door, he was an old farmer and he actually was somebody who used to go out and cut ice on the lake and he would deliver ice. You know, he was a wow. farmer in the summer and an ice man in the winter. Wow. Um, and so my relationship with the lake and that waterfront was really strong from really early on that evolved in time my mom went on she became the um, director of a nonprofit called at Sego 2000 the lake is at Sego, which is um the uh, indigenous word for reflecting glass or glimmer glass and she became the director of the nonprofit Atsigo 2000, which was, of course, thinking forward to the preservation of this lake. And those conversations that she would bring home would be about um, how are we thinking about runoff? How are we thinking at that point, um, the lake did not yet have zebra mussels. So how are we thinking about and contending with zebra mussels as they spread throughout um, you know, the eastern seaboard and then fresh waterways. We talked about phosphorus. We talked about um, erosion from from boats and from wakes and really balancing how do people recreate on this lake and how do you also protect the lake? How do you develop around the lake in a way that supports the local economy? And how do you ensure that there's um, a lake here that people will come to and flock to and love? And my mom went from being in the chamber, went from being in that nonprofit to being the director of the Chamber of Commerce. And so in my life, there was really never a question about whether or not environmentalism and business should be something that go hand in hand because I could see the values of my family being upheld across both of those endeavors that she was leading. Um, 
and so for me, and also, you know, my, my family owned a restaurant. My father was a teacher. We were part of this nonprofit community. I had really in, just incredibly supportive um, place that I came from. And that was something that I recognized when I was in high school. And even though I didn't have a language for it at that point, um, it was something that really drove me in my career direction. So I came out of high school with this feeling that I could do anything. I could go anywhere. I could do anything. I could try anything because for me, failure was a return to Cooperstown. And that was so, um, it was so supportive. And I had this sense that even if I were to lose my family, I could always go home and I would always have a community that had this fabric knitted together that was like a trampoline for me, that I wouldn't be able to fall farther than Cooperstone. And and it was with that idea that I went into college and began on a pathway of, um, and of studying international development. Um, so my first career path is actually in international development and working in Sub-Saharan Africa. I worked um, for a brief time in clinical site development for HIV AIDS and also was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa. And all of that was kind of driven by this idea that if if I as an individual could feel this sense of obligation and opportunity to go as far as I could, as hard as I could to do as much of good. um, And if that was derived from having come from a place with really high community security, what could I do to help replicate that in mm. other places? What and so in- my work and my motivation for all of my career from, you know, very, you know, the very early career days, which are like internships and, and the like, uh, was driven by that sense of a, a sense of obligation and an opportunity to try to recreate the sense of community security. Today, in, in climate change adaptation work, you know, we the term of art for this that gets used is social cohesion. Um, how do we create social cohesion? How do we map social cohesion? And we see social cohesion as a really critical driver in what leads to resilience so the well-being of a community af before during and after a disaster Hmm. people knowing each other's neighbors feeling secure with one another feeling like they can turn to one another for um, support and for mutual aid is one of the most important factors in how a community will come through Hmm. a disaster when they arrive man you know, I really appreciate you going into that detail of your personal history and perspective coming out of Cooperstown, because what comes across there is this sense of stability and security uh, in your in your early years and the importance of the fabric of the community as being a foundation of your confidence and your career choices and your perspective as a professional. And it does seem to fit very nicely into the career you are in now uh, at, at working with adaptation professionals and adjusting to something which is the, one of the most unpredictable and unstable conversations, if we can put it that way, uh, people are having around the world, which is this massive uh, uh, issue of climate change. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I, I really appreciate it because it helps us understand your motivation and your perspective. Um, you said that that what you really are working to try to do is develop this community conversation around climate adaptation and resiliency. Uh, that really rang a bell with me when you talked about the community conversation because Tyler and I talk about this quite frequently that climate change is a people problem. Um, Mm -hmm. It is a science issue, but fundamentally, in terms of how we are going to respond and what we are going to do together, is a people problem. Can you talk about the centrality of community thinking and the human response uh, in your work and in climate adaptation? How central is that and why is that the center, if it is the center? Yeah, I'm more I'm I'm happy to talk about that. So one of the things that attracted me to ASAP when the opportunity came to um to leave the University of Michigan and the NOAA program that I really loved directing and or loved managing and look forward to talking more about and and some other portion here, but yes. was that ASAP was articulating itself as um the people people. And it was not an entity that was trying to stand up um, better science or actually trying to be about be about the, the best practices. And all those are part of what we do here. But at its inception, ASAP was founded because there were people who were starting to work on climate change adaptation who were ecologists and who were state policymakers and who were um, you know, climate scientists. And they were from time to time kind of running into each other and finding that they had this shared um, one is shared knowledge about where we were in our climate journey, which is to say climate change is not something that is coming, but it is something that is with us. And they also had a have shared goal of doing something about it, like a drive to pragmatism. And they didn't have a community though, where they could be housed under. They each were in their own kind of sectors and spaces. And so the, the, reason for ASAP was initially to give those folks a place to meet and a place to share their work and to share ideas. And I would say that ASAP over the last 10 years, while it has grown in both what it is doing, what it is attempting to do, and the number of people participating in that, the at its core, ASAP remains a place that is about people coming together to share their experiences, to share what's working, and to find community with one another. And and we actualize this at ASAP by articulating ourselves not as a professional society, even though we put it in our name, we actually function as a social impact network. And that means that when you come into ASAP, we expect you to be aware of and open to these core principles that you will engage in reciprocity, which is that you give, you get, and everyone gains, that you will participate in transparency. And so ASAP members create amazing resources, but we don't hide them and put them behind paywalls. We don't see our job here as being transactional. Our job here is accelerating this work. So ASAP members convene, share ideas, create resources, and then those are available for all. 
We expect people to come here with a mentality of something for everyone, not everything for everyone. And so you may need to do some legwork at ASAP. You may need to come into the network and find the people in the conversations that are meaningful to you because there are a lot of nodes that are happening because we are a network of many people from many you know, diverse backgrounds. Um, and then we have trust. And the principle of trust is that you will come in here, you will take your time, you will listen, you will expect to be heard, but you will also be invited to step back when that's necessary so that the network can really grow and thrive. Wow, that, that's uh, an incredible breakdown of what the American Society of Adaptation Professionals is, I think, Peter. This this uh, community of folks, I, lo I love that term, uh, social impact network. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. a very interesting relationship. And I, I just, I love it because of the nature of adaptation itself and the, the fact that it is such, that it is such a social issue. How do you... Uh, let, let's start specifically, like say someone comes, joins uh, ASAP and they are yep. a, I don't know, they're a city manager and they're dealing with of a coastal city. Hell, it's the American Shoreline Podcast Network. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? Um, how are they going to connect with p people from other sectors? And, and can you articulate maybe a, an anecdote of of how this works, like what this actually looks like? Yeah, of course. So those were the principles that underlie the way that we operate as a network, which really very often comes down to the way that we who work here as staff are making sure that our systems and our mechanisms are looking and feeling. So that is the, you know, almost that's like the air duct system in the building. It's not actually what anybody who is participating is really asked to be, um, mm -hmm. They are meant to know it, but they are not um, supposed to be like, oh, I love your HVAC system. I'm going to stay, right? <laughs> like, they're probably happy there's heat, but that's not what you know, kind of drew them in. So from a from a programmatic perspective, ASAP offers, um, offers programs in four ways. We talk about having an ASAP Connects program, a careers program, a voices program, and a serves program. And... The Connects program is kind of the flagship of ASAP. And so this is, as we say, this is the heart of the ASAP network. And the way that it operates is that on an annual basis, members engage in um, an open democratic process by which they recommend member-led interest groups that will be administered and supported over the coming year. Mm -hmm. And those groups are formed on a range of topics. So for 2021, our member group topics are climate migration and managed retreat, network of networks, so people who are operating networks at a subnational level to meet and exchange best practices, um, policy and practice group, which is focusing on the federal level to inform policy and practice and bring in speakers who can both receive information and inform members about what's taking place policy-wise. Um, Adaptation design. So this is a group that's talking really like nuts and bolts about what is it to design adaptation strategies and the professional job seekers group. So this is a group for young professionals who are seeking new opportunities. And then we have a sixth group, which is actually called our um, Good Grief Network. And the Good Grief Network is a network which is convened by members to help those who are really struggling with 
um, the heaviness of this work to come together and to share and to be able to, wow. um, you know, reflect and hopefully find really strong, supportive community. Interesting. Um, and so your question is, you have a new, you have a, you're somebody who's, uh, let's, let's say they're in Toledo, Ohio for, for my Great Lake centric and they're saying, you know, I've got a thousand things to do. Why would I also add ASAP to the list? The thing that I would think they would come here for is they might be interested in one of these member-led interest groups. So you're in the Great Lakes region. You've been hearing a bunch of this buzz that is going on about migration. So maybe you want to drop into that group. And so on a monthly basis, you'd come together and you would be hearing from experts, have an opportunity to put together um, you know, maybe some thought pieces about what does migration mean from your perspective. Uh, you'd have a chance to share the way that this kind of um, issue is being integrated into your decision making with people who are both like you. So perhaps other city decision makers, but maybe also somebody who's working in the private sector who's trying to create a product for you to think about updating your infrastructure. And maybe a researcher who's kind of pulling in the best and the brightest and new demographic information. Hmm. Um, and one of the, I'd say one of the things that makes ASAP especially attractive to a certain type of person is that it is really diverse. So our membership is 25% public sector from the local to the federal level, 25% academia, 25% private sector, and 25% nonprofit. So you get a really nice. authentic um, cut across of who's working on this field from really different angles. Interesting. Sounds like a really holistic organization. And if you, the question I have is whether people who work, um, as you said, it's a very broad spectrum of members from across uh, various sectors. Uh, do people, and, and this is, I'm not quite sure this is precise enough question, but do people see themselves as adaptation professionals? Is that a, is that a frame of reference that you are helping to promote and like an identity. People, yeah. Do people yeah. understand that they're adaptation professionals or they suddenly look up and go, gee, all these years I've been doing effectively adaptation work, but I didn't know that's what it was. <laughs> right. So it's, you get a that? little bit of both. Um, I thought so I was a on caterpillar. On our website, yeah. we do have like on the website, we do have a, a section that is, am I an adaptation professional? So you can Okay. Help, help answer that question for yourself. We broadly define adaptation professional as somebody who considers future, someone who considers future climate conditions in their day to day work. Hmm. And, um, and there is a divide, I would say, by age about whether or not you think you are a climate adaptation professional, you want to be an adaptation professional or you are just finding out that you've been one for a while. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot more students, there are a lot more early career professionals who are seeking to be climate adaptation and resilience professionals. There are many, many people who are engineers, lawyers, watershed managers over the age of 45, 50, hmm. who probably have been being adaptation professionals for quite, well, I should say, there's many who have been being adaptation yeah. professionals. There's many more who are becoming adaptation professionals really rapidly. Kind of discovering that. And let me ask you this. You said uh, you defined it, and I think uh, in mm -hmm. a way that I understood, uh, people yep. who are taking future climate conditions into account, 
in their professional work. Um, what is, so, and I would say, Tyler, anybody who's on the, on the coast of America, if you're a city council member, a county commissioner, a stakeholder, a property owner, a developer, if you're a commercial fisherman, uh, you would be a climate yeah, if adaptation take, professional because you've got to be thinking about this issue on the American shoreline. You, if you're really honest if about it, honest. I think that that's true. And If you're really honest about it. But that's also, so let me say something that we do expect. So there is a broad definition. But ASAP is a network of people who choose to be here. And part of that is an expectation that you are not just by mistake doing adaptation, but you're you know, so ASAP is open for everyone, <laughs> yeah. but you're going to find that the, the, the people who are most satisfied with the community that exists here are those who want to be intentional. And yeah. that is changing really fast. Interesting. It's changing really fast, but there's a big difference between people who are um, subjected to climate change and who are living in the changing reality and people who are asking those pragmatic and intentional questions about how do we do this differently? And well, let's, yeah. you, you mentioned that uh, there is a drive to pragmatism. I, I liked that phrase when you mm-hmm. said drive yeah. to pragmatism and, and when we on the, on the coast and in, in many of the stories we carry on coastal news today or in the podcast in this subject area, Uh, We're talking a lot about future development and what's appropriate or inappropriate and how to respond to rising sea levels, which is obviously a derivative of climate change, an impact of climate change. Um, One of the key issues that we like to explore, and we do this with Rob Young at the uh, Center for Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University, one of my favorite uh, mm-hmm. provocative thinkers on the American coastal development uh, process and how to respond. But he's he's an advocate of managed retreat. And you mentioned it. And I would just like, could you speak to that issue? Uh, mm-hmm. It's an incredibly complicated issue. But what have you, um, what has ASAP uh, done with that topic? How has that been developed or explored or explained in, in your work as a society? Yeah. It is a really very, very complex topic. ASAP has been convening a member-led interest group now going into its third year on climate migration and managed retreat, which hosts a variety of conversations on the topic, primarily domestic or North American, but also reaching into the international context. Um, And in there, we expect and see the members and those who are part of that community um, really pushing to ensure that managed retreat conversations are starting from the community up and that managed retreat and climate migration from an ASAP perspective are an adaptation strategy. Mm -hmm. These this idea of managed retreat or climate migration, very much like the rest of adaptation, does not need to be treated as an emergency or a radical idea, but it's something that should be on the table as you go through a really thorough community engagement process. Here, where people are, what do they need, what is possible here, 
who is owning decisions. Um, so we, you know, we provide a living guide on the principles of adaptation and it, it begins with the recognition that many adaptation professionals have a lot of power and they are in a decision-making position. And one of their top responsibilities is to disseminate that power and to ensure that their decision is always with and never for. And managed retreat, I'd say, you know, it's really, it's a hot topic. Um, and our members are, are looking at it. They're learning about it. They um, are preparing in this next year to create some policy recommendations on this topic specifically. Um, but all of it really comes from ASAP from a place of saying, this is an adaptation strategy and it needs to be treated and um, explored with the same kind of community respect that we expect all adaptation strategies to be considered and explored with. So you want it to be part of the conversation. And I do think that's absolutely appropriate when examining alternatives to climate change and sea level rise on the coast. Uh, can we really truly uh, take a serious look at uh, managed retreat as an option as opposed to a throwaway alternative you know, in the analysis, number five, yeah, we'll write it down and we're going to move past it. I, I think the seriousness of that is what you're, it sounds like what you're calling for. Well, it's both. It's the seriousness of it, but also that right now, you know, and I will admit that sometimes my perspective is um, really skewed because I think about climate change adaptation all day, every day, and not everyone does. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm actually saying that we have to remember that there's a lot of options for these coastal communities. And retreat, managed retreat is one of them, but the book has to stay open um, to what meets the community's needs right um and 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 then i also want to say i think it's important for us to say that because managed retreat is is being treated as a very new idea but the united states has a history of forced migration and has a history of using environmental forces to um make people move and that history is not one that we want to feel like we are repeating and upholding because it's it's rooted often in racism and classism. Um, and so we have to be prepared to recognize that conversations about environmental migration, now called my you know, managed retreat, um, are not actually new. Uh, that communities have, in fact, been moved. There have been communities that have attempted to manage, to retreat in a managed way and been denied resources. And that there's a body of, of actions that we can look at and say, you know, how do we feel about what we've already done before we start acting like we're making up something new that has to be completely invented from not having had any experience with it so far you know uh well first of all i completely i want to just second that and i i re i remember um when hurricane katrina happened and there were voices to out there saying you know no new orleans just shouldn't exist it's a stupid place for a city and um you know it just happens to be a 
a, a, a black city and uh, a symbol of uh, African-American culture and those voices that were saying, Kick, you know, let's just leave that place. It's too expensive. Why are we spending money? On that? Those voices were not a part of that community. And that's just, I think, inherently very uh, counterproductive and problematic. Um, what we encounter on the shoreline, and I'm sure you encountered back home in Cooperstown and, and, and everywhere, is that uh, oftentimes community members have competing interests. So in a, co- in a coastal community, um, you know, private property owners, business owners, uh, people that, that uh, exist off of the tourism industry uh, and, and are, that is their livelihoods, they oftentimes are, find themselves at odds with what I, what I would consider uh, other p- people who are par- a part of the community and, and want to see uh, development happen in different ways. And, and th- these are the issues of, of the civics of the community that they're trying to adjudicate. And um, interestingly, I, you know, on, on ASPN, we try to group all of these people together on Coastal News Today and ASPN. Our, our theory is like, well, you're all part of this community, even if you have competing interests and and one interest, you know, says we got to go this way and the other. No, no, no. Actually, you, you are actually in it together. You are actually connected by the geography of this space and the fact that the land water inter- interface uh, is uh, connected directly to both, say, you know, the fisherman's livelihood and say uh, the, the, the hotel uh, operators uh, livelihood that both are. Uh, connected in that they need a healthy, uh, sustainable environment for them both to work, but they can oftentimes in the short term be dramatically opposed. And I'm wondering, first of all, this is going to be a two-parter. Are, are, are all of these community members adaptation professionals, according to your definition, is my first question. And secondly, how do, in, in these connection, in your, in your uh, Connects program, how do people of opposing interests sorted out? I mean, are, are they able to? I mean, do you, is conclusion reached or is it really not about the ends? Is it really about the, the journey that matters? <laughs> tell, tell me about that. So I, I would say that ASAP is comprised of some parts of the, some people who are in those conversations, but not all of them. And this goes back to that willingness to be intentional about taking action. And that means there are a lot of people, not just on the coast, um, there are a lot of people across the country who are not willing to admit that we're living in a changing climate condition and that that is going to require significant change in the way that you behave. in case we didn't know before 2020 that people aren't great at behavior change, we really have had it reinforced for us in the last year, I think. Like even small changes can be really scary for people to undertake. Um, And so I would say that the people who are in ASAP are people who are in those coastal communities. They are in Charleston, they are in Broward County, Florida, they are in Baltimore, and they are coming to ASAP because they actually 
don't necessarily have a strong community immediately around them. And that's why ASAP is a national network. It's a, it was born as a virtual network. We didn't become a virtual network in 2020. We've existed that way. And so even though everybody in your story may be impacted by climate change and they may be thinking about climate change in their day-to-day work, that doesn't right. mean they're actually intentionally trying to do something pragmatic and right. action-oriented toward it. Now, what I would say you get in the Connects program is that you get a person who is like Jennifer uh, Gerardo, who is the chief resilience officer in Broward County, Florida. And she's been working in Broward County to make sure that the developers who want to be building on those coasts, they want to keep developing um, you know, along the, along the edge of the ocean, understand what the planning process is that the county is going through to be setting its climate and its resilience standards. And Jennifer's experience is one that has, you know, she's been at this work for over a decade and she's been able to develop a trust relationship with the developers to the point where in the last year, they, the county came back around on its previous design storm standards and its previous resilience codes. And it said, you know, we are going to have to increase our sea level rise target from 24 inches to 40 inches. Hmm. And that completely changed their priority planning areas for the county. It also means that there's resilience standards that are now going to be trickling down to the communities within the county. But when the moment came for her to have those new standards passed, she had the support of the whole developer community behind her because they saw that there'd been a conversation ongoing, that there was a need to update the standard. And then they also saw a government entity that was actually making a change that would affect everybody keeping the playing field level. Hmm. And so it was really well received. So, you know, Jennifer sits in these connects meetings and tells this story. It's why I can tell that story because she shares it. So the last time I heard her tell this story, she was actually in a meeting. She was saying, you know, we found that our storm design or our storm severity has increased 20%. And there was a group there from Virginia beach. And they said, you know, we knew what you were doing. We found the same thing. And then somebody from Charleston chimed in and said, we found the same thing. So if if Charleston, Virginia Beach, and Broward County, Florida are all seeing an increase in their, their storms of 20%, can we now ASAP can say, if you're a community that's on the eastern seaboard, we're pretty sure this is the design that you should be using and you don't need to go out and find it out for yourself because there's these leaders that can show you what they've already done. Um, I love so, that example. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Yeah. I, I'm curious because what, what strikes me about that story is sort of the common realization of the changing conditions and the story from Broward County. Uh, what struck me was when you said that and she had the full support of the developer community when uh, the county moved forward in adjusting their land use planning and and standards uh, that's mm-hmm. an extremely difficult thing to accomplish uh, and it comes back to this notion that climate change and adaptation is a people issue you really have to figure out uh, how to help people through this realization of new information and to adjust what do you think is the secret to that how do you make it possible 
for people to encounter change and to persevere, in a sense, and become effective or pragmatic about it? So when I was with GLISA, the Great Lakes Integrated Science and Assessment Program, which is a joint program between the University of Michigan and Michigan State University, and it's one of 11 NOAA RISA programs around the country. And the RISA program is dedicated to taking climate information and making it usable and useful to decision makers. And I love the RISA program. The way that I love Cooperstown, I'm like a fangirl for the RISA <laughs> program too. Um, and we used a framework there where we talked about what has happened, what will happen, and what are the impacts. Because a lot of times you get the impression that climate champions want to come, you know, parading in, telling you what's going to happen in 2050. You're not going to be ready. There'll be so much more rain. The water will be so much higher. What are you going to do about it? Um, and that model of leading with future data really turns people off. <laughs> what's, wrong? So, what's wrong with that? What's, what's wrong with that? Mm -hmm. It dismisses that individuals have expertise of their own place. People, so from, from me, coming back to my love of place, I, I believe that people know their place and they are experts in their place. And so you begin a conversation with what has happened here? How have things changed? Are you able to interact with the winter the way that you used to? Are you able to grow the crops that you are used to? Are you seeing rain cycles in the same way that that you, you know, believe to hmm. be your climate? I like it. Climate is part of our cultural experience and people hmm. feel it changing under their feet. They know they know something about it and they don't need to look at a study to find they it don't. or to be told this is what the research shows. Is that it, and more it, it's more of a more organic understanding of the issue from within, I think. That's right. And so you help people. You say, tell hmm. me what's changed here. And then you can offer them data. If you live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, rain has increased. Precipitation has increased 45%. You bet people know that. You bet that they mm -hmm. know that they're getting more... Um, basement flooding, they're getting more nuisance flooding, they're seeing more backflows from combined sewer systems. People experience that right. viscerally. Right. And so then you say, okay, here's the data. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that. Like that happened for sure. You can use a local weather station for that. You don't need it. a climate model. Got it. And so then you say, okay, you're talking now, right? So now you're getting into brass tacks with your with your city engineer who wants to just put a new pipe in the ground. And you're like, okay, so how many times, like, what rainstorm are you starting to see flooding at these critical infrastructures? Well, we're starting to see flooding when you get these storms that are, you know, 1.75 inches. Huh. Okay, how often are we gonna pass that threshold? Hmm. How often are you already passing that threshold? Now, what's your appetite for risk? because this is where we see ourselves going. And so the conversation becomes really about who are you? What matters to you? What's the threshold that your system can operate under? Maybe hmm. your system is a health threshold. Right. When are you seeing more um, intakes at your hospital from heat related illness? Hmm. Maybe it's about a school issue 
when are you seeing kids not coming in because it's ice storms and they don't want to put their kids outside to wait for a bus or you know so you start talking about what matters here what matters in this place and then you bring in so this is where we're heading in the future and then people say oh geez i don't want to have more pipes burst oh man i don't want to have more backflows i don't you know and so then you're talking about solutions to problems that people are the experts of and that's so important i love it so it, it makes a lot of sense uh rather than uh, sitting down, bringing in an atmospheric scientist with a very complicated computer model about parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere and gas trapping and all of the, the technical stuff, is you're, you're trying to draw the truth from the community, it seems, rather than an external source of information, uh, is helping people understand that their experience is connected and that they actually do understand this in a visceral and personal ways so that you're not imposing an understanding. What you're trying to do, it sounds like, is to draw out an understanding of people's real world experiences. Is that close to what the method is here? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You really, um, because climate change isn't going to happen. It's happening. And this is the silver lining of our inaction is that now we're in it, we're experiencing it. Yeah. It's the floods, it's the fires, it's the heat days, it's the polar vortex. Huh. Um, people are experiencing these impacts. And so you just have to unleash them to be experts. And um, It takes a lot of trust to do that, I would think. Well, it not... A, willing, a willingness, to, <laughs> a, a willingness to, to trust that personal perception yes. and personal understanding and to truly listen as opposed to take a comment period, let them say something and move on. It's really about... Oh, yeah. It's very inconsistent hmm. with our scientific process. Yeah. It's pretty inconsistent with most of our public engagement concepts. Yeah. And it really is upsetting um, to, to the idea of experts and professionalization. Right. Um, yeah, so can we can we talk about that? This is good. This is, Tyler. Yeah, sure. Let's Tyler, talk about Tyler that. And I have, you know, we we've done a lot of community engagement work yeah. uh, on issues of, of shoreline restoration, and and I think it's something we we learned uh, the hard way, the necessity of what you're describing right there. Well, I'm just you know, so I'm curious. So you're talking. There's this like professional class of uh, approach of the way that you know you. Expert. The way that you, yes, the way that you uh, manage the uh, introduction of a change, a big, you know, public change. But I'm curious about just kind of the, about leadership and, and, and the identity framing here in, in the social politics. Because it seems to me that what you're saying when you go truly grassroots like this, I mean, you're going directly to community members and you're saying, no, 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 no. You're you're in it. You you know. You know because you're in it. You are you are actually you've actually adapted whether you know it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's really about a reframing as we started with the show of this identity of being uh, an an, ad, an adaptive individual, an adaptive member of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering how that manifests, because I could say, you know, you said something very interesting that is actually in the scientific community controversial. You attributed uh, the fires and the the powerful storms and the, for example, this polar vortex 
that we are, Peter and I are living through as we speak, uh, you attributed it as a climate change event, okay? And I am personally very comfortable with that. But I found on Twitter that there are some scientists out there who are like, hold your horses there, folks, that we can't attribute this to climate change. This isn't a climate change event. But I, I, but, and I realize that attribution, scientific attribution is something a little different than what you're talking about. But the notion of being a part of that, the climate, that climate change is now happening and that it is a part it is among us as we speak the the call is coming from inside the house <laughs> it is we it, we are in it uh i th- i think that that opens a possibility for political leadership that previously didn't exist i mean these meetings were kind of sequestered off in the crucible of uh you know peter we used to do these consultancy things where we would provide the barrier between the uh, city council and the 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 real people in power in the community. It seems like there's an opportunity here for leaders to. Uh, I get where you're going. To, yeah, what is the opportunity yeah. for the elected leaders to embrace this approach? It does seem to have some advantages. Sure. And I guess to go back to your attribution science question. I yeah, think, please do. You know, a place where we, um, let me say holistically, there's a lot of climate science that is still getting done that's really critical. Sometimes um, I can come off as being like, ah, we don't need the science anymore. We can just do it based on what's happening in front of us. And that's not what I'm saying either. There's like a critical need for more basic science research, you know, the IPCC, full steam ahead, better models. Um, Attribution science needs to continue improving. It's moving rapidly. It's a hard science. It's a complex science. Um, but for those who would say, you know, people ask me all the time, Beth, is this a climate? Is this climate change? And I'm like, you know, is this is the polar vortex climate change the one occurring right now? No, I can't say whether or not it is. But I can tell you that your need to be able to respond to greater variability in the conditions that you're going to be living through is an effective climate change. We can tell you that the jet stream becoming unstable is an effective climate change. So the um, the one-off question and the one-off fights that people like to get in, you know, is this climate change today, is really not helpful or actually what is needed to be discussed. But the whole system changes that we're operating under are changing our global system there's no question about that no question and i wanted to beth ask about the work that you're just beginning as reported uh in the paper recently this week regarding migration or potential migration to the great lakes region it appears that the society and others are beginning to undertake a fairly substantial investigation of the potential migration of people to the Great Lakes region uh, and whether or not the region uh, is prepared for that kind of uh, change. Can you speak to that issue, why that's important and what you're planning to or or hope to learn in in the investigations that you're undertaking? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I... When I was looking at your past podcasts, I felt like you need more podcasts about the Great Lakes in general. No, so- <laughs> we do. I'm not going to fight that. We're not going to. We that. love the Great Lakes. We do. So 
The Great Lakes have 4,500 miles of coastline. There's 30 million people. And the lakes make up 80% of the surface fresh water of the United States and 20% of the surface fresh water of the world. Wow. Yeah. So why are we talking about what's going to happen in the Great Lakes region? The question is like, why is, why is not everyone talking about what's going to happen in the Great Lakes region? When you take a perspective of what is already here in the Great Lakes region, that you have um, you know, this history of industry and incredible agricultural base, um, a people who I think find in themselves, believe in themselves to be the innovators and the, among the creators of the country. And then you layer on what's happening in other places. Um, we start thinking about the fact that we have already 800,000 people who live in neighborhoods that are exposed to annual flooding. We have 13 million people who are expected to be pushed out of their homes by 2100 because their homes will be inundated. They can't live underwater. They won't be able to be there. Um, and then another 40 million people who are dependent on the Colorado watershed, which hasn't recharged, Powell and Lake Mead haven't recharged over 50%. So like we start looking at what's already here and then what's happening in, in other parts of our country. And we ask this question of people are going to move. Why would they not move to the Great Lakes region? Mm -hmm. And to be completely honest and there's no science, there's no demographic science right now that says people are going to move to the Great Lakes region. <laughs> there is only science that shows that the states of the Great Lakes region are going to continue losing population. <laughs> and so we're talking about, well, I shouldn't say that about Minnesota. Minnesota actually might be the outlier and that it's growing. But the nine states of the Great Lakes region, which um, are from Minnesota to New York, you know, they are... They're 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 have net losing, and they're okay. expected to continue doing that. So the reason that ASAP is looking at this is kind of building on our earlier conversation. There are a lot of conversations underway around managed retreat and where people will be leaving, but there's very few conversations about where people are going to. Right. And and so our initial um, work on this is to try to bring that conversation forward. And to really think about this as a question of how do we get ahead of a potential shift in both people, but also businesses and industry, Man. so that we can look at that 80% of the surface fresh water of our country and know that it'll be stewarded in a way that is sustainable and compassionate. Okay. Let me and see also if... think about the communities around that water. Okay. Let me, uh, you know what, Tyler, I, you know who I miss right now in this conversation is Dan, Dan Martin is Dan Martin who, from Chicago, who was a podcast host on the American shoreline uh, podcast network and did a show called next gen waterfronts. Uh, mm -hmm. He was an, just a master and so interested in demographic shifts a great long-term thinker passed away in December very unexpectedly, and we were very, very sad to, to lose him uh, as a friend, uh, but also as a colleague and a, and a professional. Um, 
But this conversation uh, about potential demographic shifts, it seems to me that what you're suggesting here is as the climate warms and as northern climes become a little bit more, you know, attractive uh, and you've got water and you've got certain stability and assets there, that there is the potential for people to in-migrate into the Great Lakes region. Is that sort of what you're thinking could happen as a result of climate change? Yes. And, yeah, and you know, the other conversation we've had along this line was with Louisiana Sea Grant uh, and the adaptation people down there who are working on the yeah. Isle de John Charles and the in migration from the Mississippi River Delta. In yeah. a very similar question, where are these people going to land? Are the communities they're going to move to prepared? Uh, it's the same question, and I, I bet you're not wrong here. I, it makes sense to me that as time mo- moves on, uh, a, a reinterest or maybe a reinvigoration of, of, of uh, population growth in the Great Lakes region is not out of the question at all. Listen, I'm, a, I'm 34, and I'm looking at my life ahead of me, and I'm, you know, yeah, I think I'm it. drawn to, from, to certain places, and I have to say, uh, Minnesota, the Upper Peninsula, Michigan's a badass state. I didn't realize it. There's some cool shit on in Michigan. I think we've totally, I think we've totally it's overlooked. We've totally mm-hmm. overlooked it. And I, I've, 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 I'm embarrassed to say that I'm turning my my head back to my uh, to my old family lands. You know, yeah, your family yeah. is Iowa, right? Iowa, Chicago. Iowa, you know, Chicago. but the Midwest, we mm-hmm. can throw. Is, yeah. Would you? I guess it's not sure. part of the great. Sure, it all together. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I spent a little time when I was a kid. I lived in Gladwin, Michigan. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Yeah, so my father oh, yeah. was stationed over near Lansing, I believe is how uh-huh. I remember it. Uh, but it, it, but this migration issue is is a, a very interesting topic. And tell us about the, the investigation you're going to do. I understand that you've received funding. This is a it sounds like a multi-year effort to look at this demographic change and how adaptation to this potential climate migration could occur. Can you tell us about, you know, what you're going to be digging into? So we're starting out at a really basic point where we first convened an event where we brought climate, we brought um, climate scientists and demographers together to talk about what is the state of integrating demographic and climate models. It's extremely what I would call sticky. It's more... Uh, This interdisciplinary pursuit is less developed than I realized it was before we started engaging in this project. It is very difficult to integrate climate information into set sciences, and demography is a science which uses historic models, and so getting a historic model to perform in a way that is looking at a change condition that hasn't happened yet is really difficult to do. We have done a pretty good job on updating models when it comes to some engineering questions, but as we've entered into the demography piece, it's really very much in its nascent phases. So one of the first things we did was we convened a workshop where we heard from people who are working on the integration of climate change and demographic modeling to understand this kind of the state of the art um, for this question, especially in a domestic or North American context. It's even stickier than the international conversation. From there, where ASAP is heading and um, is really trying to live into those values that I talked about already about yeah. understanding what matters to communities. And so we're first 
hosting a series of focus groups and community conversations with a variety of different types of stakeholders, ranging from business owners to municipalities, to tribes, to environmental justice organizations, to community-based organizations, to watershed groups, environmental uh, managers saying, what are you thinking about? What are your questions? What are what does climate migration mean to you? And we're preparing a gaps, a needs and gaps assessment okay. that will become a public resource. So we're funded by the Great Lakes Integrated Science and Assessment Program for this product to create this product. And it's going to be something that'll be available. ASAP doesn't expect to be out doing demographic modeling and research, but we do want to make sure that we're thinking about what do our members who are adaptation professionals need to be thinking about as they begin to bring this conversation into their work. So we're thinking about what is the way that we continue supporting the professional competencies of our members. But there's going to be a lot of questions that need to be answered and investigated by many different people. So we're doing this, of course, a literature review. We're doing the focus groups, those focus groups, again, really trying at the bottom, you know, at the bottom of this work to make sure that stakeholders across this region know what we're up to and why we're doing it. And then we're also supported by um, New York State to host a couple of rapid um, demographic accelerator teams. And so they're using some of the existing models and research that is out there to see if they working with some support and from ASAP, both some financial support and coordination from ASAP, if they could give New York State some sense of what change might look like into the state and also around the state. So New York is a really interesting place. It has a very you know, significant population that has high climate risk where we've already seen activities of migration, buyout, et cetera, post um, Superstorm Sandy. Mm -hmm. But it also has some of what have, you know, been speculated to be the, you know, climate refuge cities of the country up there in Buffalo and Rochester. And so we're working with New York State to look at what does in-state migration mean? How wow. does a state think about the way um, people might move within its own borders wow. versus trying to pre prepare for people coming in and out of a jurisdiction where you might have less control? That is very interesting. And we got to join. What I, think. I think yeah. I think we've got to join. This um, is a great. Sounds really fantastic. It, truly, I, I we we're coming up on the end of the show, but I've just got to ask you, as as someone who thinks, as you put it, you think about uh, adaptation all the time. Um, yeah. One of the things we've been kicking around for the past year on this show uh, is Peter and I. I mean, is what can we can we learn anything from the COVID experience uh, mm -hmm. from an, from an adaptive adaptivity perspective. I'm curious if you could comment on that. So for me personally, in my professional life, what I have taken from COVID-19 has been that we need to look at climate change with the same kind of holistic approach that we have looked at responding to COVID-19. And by that, I mean, in climate, we often separate mitigation and adaptation away from one another. But in COVID, you know, we saw, we saw prevention and treatment being deployed and held up as co-equals. 
we expected that people would be wearing masks. Well, we saw, you know, a rush to get ventilators. We can't hold these sides of action against one another. And I feel an obligation as both an adaptation professional and somebody who is often asked to essentially speak on behalf of the field, that we need to be working on climate solutions wholly and thinking about how do we really make that story about climate complete. Um, that's my that's my hope, full story. This story coming out of COVID-19 for me is extremely discouraging. And even as we're turning the corner into a new administration, and I feel like with the month of February, we've actually been able to finally pin down the page to turn into a new year. Um, yeah. I saw a real lack of willingness to be accountable for individual action. We have seen half a million people die from a virus that we can't get some among us to take the most basic action to protect one another from. Yeah. And that is really scary. Yeah. And in order for climate adaptation to go forward, it requires a belief in a public will that I fear our country is sorely lacking. And I am discouraged by what I've seen in the mm. last year. And I'm rediscovering the idea of, of hope um, and some sense of normalcy. But the reality of what we experienced in this last year from social injustice, from the failure of our political system to actually create the solutions that we've needed and the expectation of local municipalities to choose how to behave without guidance from some kind of central leadership is not um, is not a good sign for for where we are heading. Wow. Well, I, I, I think the parallel and I think the lessons you're drawing are uh, rational and reasonable. Uh, I, I like to think at, on the hopeful side that uh, we rise to the occasion, uh, and I think the occasion may be beginning to begin. Uh, so far, I would agree with you that uh, I've been stunned by our capacity to uh, capacity for denial, uh, that something as and these are both the reason why this parallel is interesting to me. We're, we're talking about physical phenomena here. We're talking about something that is not a policy. We are talking about a virus, uh, a respiratory airborne virus that acts in a certain way, as does atmospheric science and the conditions on the planet. These are physical things. And facing them squarely and being willing to understand what is happening and then respond is the key. And uh, in both of these situations, there is an ability and a capacity to deny the existence of the facts. Uh, I'm hopeful because I, I sort of live by the proposition that reality is a persistent teacher, and it will continue to hound you until you come to an understanding. Uh, our failure to grasp and contend with climate change 
uh, is going to be spoken about by the planet <laughs> because the physical world is going to react to what we're doing. And uh, over time, I think it sinks in. At least that's my hope. Over time, I think our capacity and our willingness to respond to COVID will improve because although, good grief, Beth, uh, when we've lost 500,000 people almost, uh, you think we've had enough reality to know. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I, I really, I just want to say it's been, a, it, it's, we could talk about this for, for hours and, and I would love to uh, continue this conversation perhaps another time because I really want to discuss with you uh, what the financial institutions around the world are doing in response to climate. I was very fascinated with Blackstone uh, yeah. groups, uh, goals, and, and there's so much there that we're not going to be able to get to today. But, you know, maybe we can continue this, Beth, in another show. And uh, it's been a pleasure to meet you, and I really thank you for taking the time to, to talk to us. Uh, closing thoughts? Yeah, I'll throw one closing thought out there, and it goes back to what I was saying about the process that we get to action by, and that I do believe that we can move action forward, and that the climate story, by taking it out of the data and making it personal to people, having them own it, having them then see opportunities to control their fate, having them see interventions that can be put in place to reduce their flooding, to cool their city, to lessen their deaths from climate impacts, people will fight for those. They'll fight for them locally, they'll fight for them at the state level, and they'll fight for them at a national level. And it's where climate change adaptation becomes a door to mitigation. It also becomes a door just to demanding more from our public good. And so I see us heading to a place where ASAP has laid this foundation for climate adaptation professionals to bring forward community voices. And now with our growing body of people, we're also able to interact at these other levels and say at a state level and at a federal level, here's a hundred stories, here's a thousand stories, here's 10,000 stories of people who want action, who know they want it, it's what they want, this is what it will cost, and this is what you need to do to be the leaders that you want to be. And I think that opportunity right now is more ripe than it has ever been for us and asap is so well positioned really great you know tyler i'm looking forward if we ever get to go back to the social coast forum could you i don't know beth oh yeah i've never been but it's like so down the the middle fun campfire that i don't ever make it to so Susie mosier was one of the founders of asap oh really yeah we, yeah, we really enjoy that. And, and, and they're ju- it's such a great conference. And you guys, uh, what you're doing and in every way would be a center point of that discussion. Yeah. I would love to see a lot of there. the a lot of Social Coast folks are are kind <laughs> of the ASAP OG. Good. Good. <laughs> well, and I got to say before we sign off on this show that I, you know, this is obviously a national thing. This this implicates all sorts of people from all over the country. But I'm really stoked to have highlighted the Great Lakes region. Yeah. And I'm also yeah. really stoked to have learned about Cooperstown. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I have to say, I'm looking forward to the post-COVID world when we get to, like, maybe go to some of these places and, and explore them further. Ladies and gentlemen from Ypsilanti, Michigan, it is 
Beth Gibbons, the executive director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Really a pleasure to have you on the American Shoreline podcast, uh, Beth. And for those interested in learning more about your organization and how to join it, uh, tell us how they could do that. They can find us at www.adaptationprofessionals.org, and we would love to have you join us. Thank you very much for taking the time to share your insights and professional expertise with us in our audience. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Sun and